Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us by your spirit so that we might know you through your son. This morning, we pray that your word would pierce our hearts, that it would exhort us where we need exhortation, that through it you would rebuke us where we need rebuke, that through it you would encourage us where we need encouragement, that you would teach us through your word where we need to be taught and corrected. Ultimately, Lord, we pray, we ask that your spirit would use your word this morning to make us more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning, I want to talk with you about this sign of Jonah that Jesus gives. Uh, this, is a, this is a passage that we think about in terms of the three days and three nights. We think about in terms of Jesus' burial, the time between his death and resurrection. Uh, but often we don't think about what that actually means for Jesus to spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is that actually, what is Jesus saying when he says that he, he's going to give them a, the sign of Jonah? And so this morning I want to give you five Five points from this passage about the sign of Jonah. And what I want us to see in the end is that the sign of Jonah that Jesus gives is simply this, that only he is able to go into the kingdom of the enemy, death itself and defeat it, rise three days later, and therefore we're all called to repent and believe in him. Jesus is king over every single place in the universe, including the enemy's stronghold, including the place of the dead, because he goes there as the victor, proclaims his victory, and then kicks down the doors on the way out so that we too who believe in him can have eternal life. That's what I want you to hear this morning. That's what the sign of Jonah is. He's not just trying to give us a parallel between three days and nights and three days and nights. Okay, we're going to talk more about that as we, as we work through this passage. So first thing that I want you to see, and this is really uh, uh, throughout the book of Matthew, I want you to see the context for this sign. I want you to see the context for this sign. One of the um, benefits and difficulties of, of preaching a one-off sermon is that you haven't been working through the book of Matthew together. And so I need to, I need to provide us with a little bit of context for why the Pharisees and scribes, some of the Pharisees and scribes, are asking for a sign. Um, this passage comes in the middle of a section in Matthew where there are escalating tensions over Jesus' authority. Jesus is saying all kinds of stuff right before this passage. He's saying all kinds of stuff that are making the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders, wriggle. They don't like it. They don't like what Jesus is saying. They're mad at it. They're mad at him. And this is coming at the end of really two chapters now, but more than that, of the Pharisees having a big problem with what Jesus is teaching. The religious leaders of Jesus' day didn't like what he was saying. And so when they demand this sign, they're asking, wait a minute, why do you get to tell us what to do? Why do you, Jesus, get to tell us how to read our Bibles? Why do you, Jesus, get to tell us how to walk with God? What gives you the right to say these things? If they were paying attention, 
They would have seen the signs all along. We'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, But in the book of Matthew, Jesus is presented as this this new Moses who's who's restoring Israel from exile. Uh, In in chapter 2, Jesus goes down to Egypt as a little child because Herod is trying to kill him, just like Moses had to flee from Pharaoh in Egypt. In chapter 3, Jesus goes into and out of the Jordan River, just like Moses led Israel into and out of the Red Sea. In chapter 4, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, just like Israel is tempted in the wilderness in the book of Exodus. But where Israel and we fail, Jesus succeeds. And so in chapter 5, Jesus stands up on a mountain and gives a new law, the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus teaches, not like the scribes and Pharisees, but as one with authority. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus demonstrates that authority through His miracles. And then in chapters 10 through 12, we find this increasing conflict. Jesus has very clearly proclaimed who He is. He's demonstrated who He is through His miracles, through healing lepers and exercising demons and calling disciples. Jesus is the one with authority. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead to life. Jesus has the authority. But as He begins to call out specifically the twelve in chapter 10 and tells them the cost of discipleship, as He has conflicts with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, over His views of the Sabbath day and over His views of the dietary laws and and dietary restrictions in chapters 11 and 12, this tension starts to bubble up more and more to the point where in chapter 12, Jesus exercises a demon. He casts out a demon. And the Pharisees say He's actually doing that by Satan's power. That's how tense this is at this moment. These religious leaders are accusing Jesus of being an instrument of Satan. You don't have authority, Jesus. You're doing everything you're doing through the power of the enemy. And that's the context for this, because Jesus rebukes them in the immediately previous passage. Verses 22 through 37. Jesus rebukes them. And says, and I'm from Alabama, so this is going to come out country, but that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Guys, how, if I'm the enemy, if I'm an instrument of the enemy, why would I cast out somebody in my own house? That is a demon. And then he says that a tree is known by its fruit. In other words, Pharisees, if you're rejecting me, who has the power of God to send out demons, that's the fruit you're known by. Okay, so essentially what Jesus does right before this is turn the Pharisees' logic and rejection on its head and say, you're calling me sent from the enemy? That's actually you because you've rejected me. And that's when we get to this request for a sign. So the context for the sign is very simple. Give us a sign that you're who you say you are. 
this cycle is going to repeat itself of, of people asking Jesus for a sign two more times in Matthew until at the end he's arrested, tried, and put to death. The Pharisees keep ramping up their rejection of him. But in the middle of that, <clears throat> in the middle of that tension, and this is, this is the first time that it's risen to this level, in the middle of that tension, we get the second thing that I want you to see, which is the demand for a sign. So the context for the sign is this rising tension over Jesus' authority. The second thing I want you to see is the demand for a sign. Okay, so the, the, the religious leaders are calling Jesus an instrument of Satan. Jesus basically says, no, bro, you are. And then, uh, and then some of the scribes and Pharisees, notice how it says that in verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. This is kind of like, okay, Jesus, I'm sorry we made you mad. Can you just maybe give us something here? They're trying to be, uh, this, this group of scribes and Pharisees, it's not all of them, they're trying to be conciliatory. They're trying to reconcile the tension in this request for a sign. And to be honest, that's normal for Jewish leaders. If somebody comes and starts to teach and essentially is, is calling themselves a prophet, which is what Jesus is doing, it's okay according to Deuteronomy 13, to want to verify they are who they are by a sign. I mean, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I'm the police, I'm here to arrest you, what are you going to ask? Where's your badge? If somebody says, hey, I'm a doctor, I'm going to perform brain surgery on you, what do you want to see? You want to see some signs that they are who they say they are and that they can do what they say they can do. So in one sense, it should be fine that the scribes and Pharisees are asking, hey, Jesus, can, can, you, can you actually just verify for us that you are who you say you are? And that's how they're asking. The problem is that they've missed all of the signs that Jesus has already done that are right under their noses. As I said, in, in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus does all sorts of miracles. He's healing diseases. He's healing lepers. He's exercising demons. He's walking on water. He's calming the storm. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? It's right in front of their noses. Same thing is true in chapters 10, 11, and 12. Jesus does things including healing a man with a withered hand in uh, chapter 12, the early part of chapter 12, and then sending out this demon right before, this, right before this passage. So they're literally standing there watching him heal a man with a withered hand, but they're mad about it because it's on the Sabbath. They're literally watching him cast out demons, but they're mad about it. And then they demand a sign. And Jesus is going, you guys see what I just did? And so he responds to them and says, 
you evil and adulterous generation. I, I just I, I want you to feel the tension that's in this passage. You're casting out demons by the main demon, Jesus. No, bro, you're a demon. Okay, okay. Hey, can you just at least give us a sign? No, you're evil and adulterous generation. That's, that's the kind of conflict that's in this passage. Jesus is, is not, um, <laughs> he's not mincing words. And in fact, <clears throat> he, he calls them an evil and adulterous generation, not, not to try to, you know, just be mean, but because he's alluding to a chapter in Isaiah. He's alluding to Isaiah 57, verse 4. And in Isaiah 57, that whole chapter is about a generation of Israel who refuses to recognize Yahweh, God Himself. And instead of recognizing God, they go and try to find help from anybody they can talk to. Instead of recognizing God as king, they send messengers ambassadors to every other king in the region. And listen to this. They even send a messenger to the place of the dead. They want to find help. They want to find assistance. They want to find rescue. They want to find salvation from any other source but God alone. And this is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the scribes. You are looking for salvation from any other source besides God in the flesh who's standing right in front of you. And in, in Isaiah 57, the climax of that chapter is, is that Israel sends messengers even to the place of the dead for help. That's how desperate, and how wicked they are. That they would turn even to the dead before they would turn to God for help. And this is what Jesus is saying to the scribes and Pharisees in this passage, and that's why He says that the sign that they get is what it is. Okay, so there's this there's the context for the sign, which is this rising tension over Jesus' authority. There's the demand for a sign, which Jesus sort of turns on its head. And then there's the sign itself. Thirdly, the sign of Jonah. Context for the sign, demand for a sign, and then thirdly, the sign of Jonah. But he answered them in verse 39, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So before we, we continue in Matthew, um, I want us to look back, and, and thankfully I, I didn't uh, know you were going to read Jonah 2, Raymond, but that was helpful. So if you'll turn in your Bibles, I want you to look at Jonah 2 because 
on the on the surface of this comment, we often take this as just the analogy with three days and three nights. Like that's the sign. That's all that's going on. That's it. Um, but but if we look at Jonah two, what we find out is that there's a lot going on in Jonah two that Jesus is referring to specifically with the phrase in the heart of the earth. And unfortunately, taking longer to get there than I anticipated. Um, Jonah chapter 2. We've read this a few moments ago, but I'm just going to read it again because I want you to hear how Jonah describes his time. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now I want you to look at this analogy. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is going to spend three days and three nights in the phrases, in the heart of the earth. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, um, uh, sorry, in, in English, Jonah 1, 17, um, which is what Matthew is quoting says, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So if you, if you think back to when in school they made you do analogies in the little dots and stuff. Um, right? We've got three days, three nights, and I don't know how to do analogies and write them out, so just bear with me on my hand placement. But three days, three nights, heart of the earth equals, in the analogy, belly of the fish. Okay, does, it, does that make sense? The, the location analogy, the time analogy is the three days, three nights. The location analogy is between Jesus being in the heart of the earth and Jonah being in the belly of the fish. So where was Jonah? Well, he's in the belly of the fish, yes. But think back through how Jonah describes this in chapter 2. In verse 1, he cries out to God from the belly of the fish. In verse 2, he describes that as the belly of shale, the place of the dead. In verses 3 and 5, he uses lots of water analogies and language, which is appropriate because he's in a fish, which live in water. Uh, so you've got water, weeds, floods, the deep. But look at verse 6. Now he's talking about a land. 
whose bars closed upon me forever. He's talking about a pit. So he's describing the belly of the fish really as the belly of the place of the dead. He's describing this deep place in the ocean as actually the prison that is death. The bars close around him. He's at the very bottom. He's in the pit. Even the water itself is described as the place of the dead. The word deep in verse 5 is the word for the waters of chaos in Genesis 1 verse 2. The Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. That's the waters that Jonah is in. He's in the place of the dead. Now, look, this is an analogy that Jonah is drawing. He's, he's really in a fish. But being in this belly of the fish is as if he has descended to the place of the dead. That's the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is that he went to a place that was like, that was as if he was in the place of the dead. And yet he still expresses hope of resurrection. Verse 4, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 6, Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He has hope for resurrection, for deliverance. He is resurrected from the belly of the fish in verse 10. The fish vomits him out, which is gross. But he's raised. Hear me on this. Hear, hear what Jonah is saying. When Jonah goes down into the depths of the sea in the belly of the fish, it is as if he is going down into the depths of the place of the dead. And when Jonah comes up out of the belly of the fish, it is as if he is coming out of the place of the dead. Going into the fish is like going into death for Jonah. What's the point of this sign? Why does Jonah give this sign? Look at verses 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The point of the sign of Jonah is that if you trust in Yahweh, you will be saved. If you reject Yahweh, you will be judged. If you believe in the God of Israel, if you repent of your sins and turn to Him, which is what the city of Nineveh does right after this in chapter 3, you will be saved. If you refuse to turn, if you follow vain idols, you will be judged. That's the whole point. And here's what's happening in the book of Jonah. Here's what's happening in the middle of the minor prophets, which is where this book has, uh, uh, is placed in the Old Testament. The minor prophets are all proclaiming this truth, that whether or not you're an Israelite or a Gentile, doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your tribe is. It doesn't matter where you were born. If you trust in Yahweh, you will be saved. If you reject Yahweh, 
you will be judged. And in Jonah, the salvation of the nations comes through the death and resurrection of a Hebrew prophet. That's what the sign of Jonah is. So as we're looking at what Jesus says, the sign, the sign of salvation, the sign that judgment and salvation is at hand is the death and resurrection of a Hebrew prophet. Now we're getting closer to what Jesus is saying to us in Matthew chapter 12. He's not trying to be coy with the Pharisees and scribes. And he's not just drawing an analogy between the number three. Fourthly, what I want you to see out of this passage is the sign of Jesus. Matthew, uh, Jesus in Matthew draws this analogy between the sign of Jonah and the sign of Jesus because as Jesus goes on to say in the verses we did not read yet in verse 41, look at it. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The sign of Jesus is greater than the sign of Jonah because Jesus is greater than Jonah. In fact, Jesus is the greater Jonah. Why? How? How is that true? There's a few different ways that that's true. Of course, Jesus came willingly to a far country, whereas Jonah had to be forced to go to a place he didn't want to go to to preach the gospel to people he didn't want to preach to, to see them saved when he wanted them to be judged and destroyed. Jesus, on the other hand, comes to his enemies, to us, gladly. Willingly. He doesn't have to be thrown overboard on a boat and eaten by a fish in order to be taken to the nations that hate him. And for Jonah, that Jonah hates. Jesus instead goes willingly into death. Jesus preaches judgment and salvation to both Israel and the nations. Jonah just wants to preach judgment to Nineveh. And in fact, that's exactly what he does. All all Jonah says to Nineveh is, three days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. That's all he says. He doesn't say, you you guys can turn and repent, you can believe, you can trust. He just says, hey, y'all are going to get destroyed in three days. Sorry. Not sorry. Um, And that's enough because God uses that to turn their hearts in repentance and faith to Him. But Jesus comes and preaches not just judgment to the nations, but judgment to Israel. And Jesus comes and preaches salvation not just to Israel, but also to the nations. And it's through Him. For for the book of Jonah and for Jonah himself, salvation isn't through Jonah. He's the one who proclaims the message of salvation, but nobody's saved through Jonah. It's through Jesus that the message is preached and that salvation is accomplished in his death and resurrection. Jesus lays down his own life rather than having it taken from him. All these things, Jesus is the greater Jonah. But here's what I want you to hear this morning. 
Whereas Jonah goes to the place of the dead in a kind of metaphorical way. He's, he's actually really in the belly of the fish, but the belly of the fish is a metaphor, an analogy to the place of the dead. Jesus actually went into death. Jonah doesn't die in the belly of the fish. It's like he died. Have you ever felt that way? The psalmist describes being so close to death that it's as if he's died. Job talks about death that way. There's lots of people in the Bible who have experiences, and maybe you yourself have had an experience where you feel so close to death that it is as if you're dead. But Jonah still didn't die. Jesus actually experiences death. He actually goes down into the place of the dead. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't just pop back up 30 seconds later. Jesus died and breathed his last. They took him down from the cross, and then he hopped up and said, hey, guys, I'm here. Why, why, did, why did he have to spend three days and three nights? Why was he in the tomb? Why, why did he have to be buried? I mean, part of it is like, okay, you're actually dead. We get it. But another, the other part of it is, and, and the major point is this, death for us for human beings. Death, the penalty for sin, isn't just a, a moment. When we die, our bodies are buried and our souls depart to the place of the dead. That's, that's true for every human being who has ever lived and who will live until Jesus comes back. So Jesus goes down into the place of the dead just like we all do. He goes with us. He experiences death just like every other human being does. Not, he doesn't just pop back up 30 seconds later. He goes down into enemy territory because that's where we all go. He's with us. And I, I'm going to come back to this in a minute, but I just want you to sit with that for a second. Death is the enemy. Death is frightening. Death is something that we all avoid talking about, to be honest, these days. We think we can put it off indefinitely. And yet it's as sure as that your taxes are due on April 15th. It will happen to you. It probably has happened to people around you. You have probably felt the pain and the loss and the grief of knowing that you will never see this person ever again until the resurrection of the dead, if you and they are believers. You, have, you may have felt the fear, the terror, at the possibility of your impending death. But here's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 12. Jesus says, in, in, a, in a, a passage that's about judgment, He also is giving us hope that He goes down to the place of the dead with us. Jesus, our Savior, hasn't just been tempted as we are. He has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's also 
been dead, as we all will be at some point until Jesus comes back. I, I don't know about you, but that's comforting to me. That's comforting to me as I, I think about the loved ones that I've lost, as I think about my own death. It's comforting, comforting to me to know that the God of the universe, the only God, came down in flesh in the person of God the Son <laughs> incarnate and lived the life I couldn't live, died the death that I deserved for sin, and stayed dead with me. And then rose from the dead and conquered it. So the first, I, I want you to hear that Jesus is greater than Jonah because he didn't just go in the belly of a fish. He didn't just go into the waters of the place of the dead. He actually went to, he went to the place of the dead for us. But he doesn't just go there to hang out. He doesn't just go to the place of the dead in order to um, be with us. He also goes to the place of the dead for us. Jonah accomplished nothing while he was in the belly of the fish other than turning to God, which is, I mean, that's, a, that's an accomplishment. But he doesn't accomplish anything for anybody else. We'll talk more about this tonight if you're able to come, but what Jesus is doing in the place of the dead isn't just being with us, although that's important. That's good. That's good news. Jesus is with us. Jesus is also for us in descending into hell. Jesus is for us as He goes to the place of the dead. When we read the line in the Apostles' Creed, He descended into hell. When we read in 1 Peter that uh, Jesus proclaimed His victory to the captives, to those in prison. What Jesus is doing while He's there is not just being with us, He's also being for us in that He's proclaiming the victory He's already won on the cross. Jesus goes into the place of the dead as the victor over the place of the dead. He has already won the victory for us. When, when Jesus dies the death that we all deserve on the cross, what does He say before He breathes His last? He says, it is finished. He's accomplished everything that we need for salvation. He's accomplished, let me tell you what that means, He's accomplished everything we need to be rescued from sin and from death. By dying His death on the cross, by dying this death that was in substitution for us in our place, by taking on our sins, He has won victory over the enemy. This is what Paul says in Colossians 2, that he nailed death to death on the cross. He has won victory over all of the principalities and powers and authorities through his death on the cross. So that, listen, when he goes down into the place of the dead, just like Jonah went down into the belly of the fish, he's going there as the person who's already conquered enemy territory, the enemy's territory. The wages of sin is death. Death is the result of sin. Death is the punishment for the fall, for Adam and Eve's sin and for our sin. And death is a place that's unnatural. The place of the dead shouldn't exist, but it does exist because of sin. 
And because Jesus has won the victory over sin, in His crucifixion, He goes to the kingdom of sin and death as the victor. And He proclaims there, and we'll talk more about this tonight, but He proclaims His victory. But He doesn't just do that. He doesn't just hang out. Uh, If you read like Greek mythology and stuff, they're just hanging out down there. That's not what Jesus does. He proclaims His victory, and then three days later, three days and three nights, Jesus kicks down the gates. The gates of hell will not prevail because Jesus has already kicked them down. That's not, an, <laughs> that's not a defensive statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 16 a few chapters later. When Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail, He's not saying, hey, listen, as much as hell backs you into a corner, they're not going to win. The gates of hell will not prevail. Gates don't do anything. Gates don't lead charges. Gates don't attack. What do gates do? They defend. They protect. And guess what? The gates of hell will not prevail because Jesus has kicked them down in His death and resurrection. And that is why Jesus is greater than Jonah. That's why this sign is a sign greater than the sign of Jonah. Jesus isn't just a Hebrew Hebrew prophet. Jesus is the Hebrew prophet who's also God in the flesh. And as God in the flesh, he goes down into the place of the dead, proclaims his victory, and kicks the door down so that anyone who repents and believes will be saved. This victory that Jesus has won is for those who repent and turn. And so fifthly, what I want you to see is the call of Jonah and Jesus. This is, again, in verses 41 and 42. It's the verses that we mentioned, verses 8 and 9 in Jonah chapter 2. The call of Jonah and Jesus is very simple. Repent and believe. Jesus says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For Nineveh, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The call of Jesus is a call to repentance and faith. The sign of Jonah, the sign of Jesus, the sign that's greater than Jesus, uh, that's greater than Jonah, is that Jesus goes down actually to the place of the dead in victory and kicks the door down. Jonah doesn't do that, Jesus does. He is the only king. And he's king, not just in heaven. He's king, not just on the earth. But he's also king under the earth. He rules over even the territory of the enemy and has conquered it and defeated it and run straight through it in his death and resurrection. This is good news for the people of God. But it's a call, firstly, to those who have never repented and believed. I know that some of you in the room may not have trusted Christ. What you need to hear today is very simple. That it is Jesus and only Jesus who has done what you can't. Jesus and only Jesus has lived a perfect life. You haven't and I haven't. 
Jesus and only Jesus has taken the penalty for your sin and for my sin through his death on the cross. Jesus and only Jesus has gone into enemy territory, the territory of death, and proclaimed his victory. And Jesus and only Jesus has risen from the dead, conquering it through his resurrection. There is only one name in heaven uh, heaven and on earth by which man can be saved. And it's the name of Jesus Christ because Jesus has done, Jesus only is the only one who's done what needs to be done for salvation. We can't, we can't earn our way into heaven. We can't defeat sin and death. We can't pay the penalty that we owe unless we pay it in eternity through eternal judgment in wrath. Only Jesus can pay that for us and rescue us from it. We can pay it, but not in a way that we're rescued. If you're an unbeliever in the room, if you haven't trusted Jesus for, for salvation, what, this, what Jesus is calling you to, through reminding you of the sign of Jonah that he has died and risen, he's calling you to repentance and faith today. Turn from your sin. Turn from the idols and kingdoms of this world. Turn from trying to send out messengers for salvation to everybody else and turn to Jesus. For for believers in the room, for those of you who have trusted Christ, there's so much that the sign of Jonah gives us hope about. Jesus, having experienced death, having gone down into the place of the dead, is hope for you and for me who have loved ones who have died. Um, I, I have a few um, when, when I was working on um, what we'll talk about tonight. Um, my mom's sister passed away unexpectedly of ovarian cancer. That was on my mind as I wrote it, but since then, in the last year, I've experienced lots of loss. Some of you may have too. Jesus is with us and for us even in the place of the dead. He's gone before you through the valley of the shadow of death and now lights the way for us by his presence. If if you've experienced loss, if you're experiencing grief and sorrow, uh, Jesus is ready and able to comfort you. Not as someone who's distant from your pain, but as someone who's experienced it. If you're a believer in the room who's experiencing oppression, depression, if you need deliverance from the powers of this world, if you need help in fighting sin, Jesus has gone into the place of the enemy. He's gone into enemy territory, and He has conquered it. The victory is already won. So that when we're fighting sin, when we're fighting the battle of depression, when we're fighting the battle of addiction, Jesus has already conquered all of those other kingdoms. Jesus has already proclaimed himself and demonstrated himself as king. Turn to to him for help. Turn away from your own strength and your own power and turn to him. Turn to those with you who he's given his spirit to, to help you. Turn to Him and to His church that He's put around you for help and for accountability. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the King. That's what I want 
you to hear, believer. You are facing untold amounts of opposition and pain and sorrow. And the good news is that even while we experience that momentary affliction, Jesus has already won the victory through His death, descent, and resurrection, is one day coming soon to make all things new. This is the hope that we have in Christ. This is the hope of the sign of Jonah. Be encouraged, believer. Turn again to Jesus, believer, to give you hope and encouragement and steadfastness and faithfulness. Because He's already gone before you and is with you now through His death and resurrection. The sign of Jonah is that Jesus is greater than Jonah. Through His victorious death, descent, and resurrection, He has conquered our last enemy. He's entered His house. He's bound the strong man. And He's done it by using His own weapon, death, against Him. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news today. So if you're not a believer in the room, repent and believe today. Turn to King Jesus. If you are a believer, King Jesus has won the victory for you and is with you in your pain and your loss and your sorrow and your grief. And one day he's going to come back and wipe every tear from your eye. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word again. We thank you for your work in your son. God, we pray that you would turn hearts today. Lord, I know that there are people in this room who haven't trusted you, and I pray that you would move them through the power of your Holy Spirit to turn from their sins and turn to you, God. Help them to give up sending messengers to every land besides your own, to every king besides you for salvation. Help them to turn to you today. God, we pray for believers in the room that they would be encouraged, that they would be reminded of the victory that you've won, and they would turn to you for help. You are our only help, God. You and you alone can help us. And so we pray that whether in our unbelief you would turn us to justification and faith, or for believers you would turn, to us, turn us again to you for help. God, we confess that you are our only hope, that you alone have won the victory over our enemy, that you alone have entered his house, that you alone have stormed his gates, that you alone have risen from the dead, and that therefore it is through you alone that we can have help and faith and hope. Help us to turn to you today, God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.